Good morning. The last song that we sang, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, um, it's easy to write that when everything's going well, correct? Sometimes we think, well, the, the you know, must have, been, must have been having a good day. Uh, if memory serves me correct, that hymn was written by an individual who had lost his family in a shipwreck uh, and that he wrote that uh, on board as he was passing that area where he, he lost his family. And in that moment, if we know the Lord and we know what he has planned for us, we can write, it is well with my soul. That was free. All right. The next part's going to cost you, uh, and it's going to cost you in time. Now, I'll, we'll, we'll, uh, I, I wrote, I keep track of basically how long the sermon is based on how many pages I have to print, and, and we're a little more this morning, but I've just determined uh, to talk faster because I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. The government already took an hour while we were sleeping, and I don't... <laughs> I don't, want to, I don't want to take any more than, than absolutely necessary. But we are at the finale of 1 Peter, of, of this letter, Christians in Conflict with Culture. And we are in conflict with culture. I was very happy Frank sang this morning. I thought it was a good end for the series. This world isn't our home. Right? This world isn't our home. We're just passing through. And it's a short stop. It's a short stop. We'll get into that a little bit this morning. But we are at the end of 1 Peter. Throughout this letter, we have been reminded that while 1 Peter was written to people that conflicted with their culture in the first century, it could have been written to us today. It amazes how much has changed in the past 10 years and how much has not changed in the past 2000. Just like today, the Roman culture of the first century was against Christ and against anyone who wanted to follow Christ and his teachings. Being a disciple of Christ was dangerous. Christians were lied about, mocked, and suffered physical persecution. We forget that Christians in America have not faced that type of persecution that is common in other parts of the world even today. Uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor back in the 90s, he went to India to teach local pastors there for, for a week at a conference. While there, the local government had him followed. He found it disconcerting, but this was normal for the Christians in the city where he stayed. Followers of Christ don't fit in with the prevailing culture, ever. The letter Peter wrote to the churches in northern Turkey gave instruction and encouragement in living in God's grace while conflicting with the culture. We started by considering the believer's faith, a faith that produces a living hope based on Christ's resurrection from the dead, and his subsequent glory, a glory in which we will share. While tempting to neglect God's plan for us experiencing persecution, that's the time when we need the most to consider what God wants us to do. And God desires for us to be holy while suffering. And we demonstrate that holiness, which sounds boring Holiness sometimes sounds boring. It sounds like it's just sitting there doing nothing. That's not holiness. We express holiness in loving one another. That's how holiness is expressed. 
A person that is constantly insulted, <coughs> excuse me, and told that they are hateful for not going along with the culture, not valuing what the world values, can start to believe the lies told about them. It is a shame that so many denominations and churches have abandoned God's word so that they can align themselves with common worldly thoughts just to avoid being insulted or to gain acceptance. In Romans 3, 4, it says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If everyone in the world, all 8 billion, says you are hateful, arrogant, ignorant, and weird for believing that God knows best and has revealed his thoughts in Scripture, let God be true and everyone else a liar. We are who God says we are. While it's tempting to build a fortress and to keep the craziness of the world outside the walls, God wants us to witness to the people in which we conflict. That sounds crazy. What is even more crazy is that our excellent conduct is shown by our willingness to submit to varying authorities. When we do that, people will then ask about our hope, and then we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Our response to persecution and worldly confusion directed in our direction is to honor Christ above everything else. We need to remember that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. We need to seek God's will above our own, even when God's will is uncomfortable or painful. Our present pain cannot compare to our future glory with Christ. We need to live like Christ could come back for us at any moment, because Christ could come back for us at any moment. The church is vital in our ability to stand firm in conflict. The elders need to humbly lead, and the congregation needs to humbly follow. And now we are at the final thoughts, the end of the letter. And this morning, we're going to consider three aspects, final aspects, of this letter that Peter wrote to the churches in northern Turkey. We're going to have first a final warning, a final warning. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There are two commands that are given. Those are, first one is be serious, and then be watchful. Be serious and be watchful. Sober-minded is a term that Peter used two other times in this letter. He used it at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 13, <clears throat> with the idea of being prepared for action. As you're getting prepared for action, be sober-minded, be serious. When traveling with, with the, uh, the, the football team that I was a coach on, uh, on away games, the way back is for fun, the way to the game is to prepare yourself. And you have to train the freshmen, but, uh, but by the time they're, they're uh, upperclassmen, they know you, you get on the bus, you relax at first, you relax, because sometimes you're traveling an hour, you relax, and then when you get to the stadium and you see the lights, helmet on, time to get prepared. We need to be serious. That's what the idea is of, of sober-minded, being prepared for action. Get your mind right about placing your hope 
and the grace of God that will be fully realized when Jesus is revealed. Be serious about that. Peter also used the term sober-minded in chapter 4, verse 7, when reminding the church that Christ is coming back soon to judge all things. Peter writes, for the sake of your prayers, be serious in your thoughts about the soon return of Christ. So the idea of Christ is coming soon, that should affect how we pray, be serious about that. But now Peter uses this term again, coupled with another imperative of be watchful. The actual phrase here is stay awake, don't fall asleep. The idea is continuous readiness and alertness for the purpose of learning, for the purpose of learning. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, in that final part of the letter, he said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I traveled with a, a group of 20 people or so to Paraguay back in my teen years on a missions trip, and we flew out of Miami International Airport to get to the jungles of Paraguay. The missions team was from all over North America, and so we met at orientation in, in Florida. Part of the training <clears throat> was to learn how to prevent our luggage from being stolen at Miami International Airport, which was no easy task at the time, I don't know now, but at the time it was, it was the airport that had the most theft. Uh, and so you have 20 people with all of our luggage, uh, and, uh, and so there, there was training that took place of how to keep it all uh, and have it, have it get to, uh, uh, to Paraguay. The technique that we learned was to pile up the luggage uh, into a very one large pile, which seems like that would be tempting, right? Uh, but that was the technique, and this was tried and true technique. They'd used it for years and years. Uh, and so you pile it up. All 20 of us had all of our luggage piled in one large pile. Uh, and then we stood around the pile of the luggage facing in, not standing at the pile facing out. Because when you're looking out, it's easy to have it swipe. But if you're standing around, we, so if this is the pile of luggage, we had about five people standing around it and just watching. <clears throat> and any time somebody looked like they might be going for it, we, would, we just took a step towards them. And, uh, and there was one time in particular where, where they went like this and they bent down and I, we all took, all five of us took a step toward them and they went, here we go. Uh, and so uh, I, I think it worked, right? Uh, so that's what we did. Our leader said that if a thief grabs a suitcase to not engage them, but to follow them yelling out, excuse me, sir, that's my luggage. And to keep following the thief, repeating that phrase, excuse me, sir, that's my luggage. We were told not to physically engage them, but to be annoyingly persistent. I don't think so. I watched Rambo. I knew what to do. But we, we took half-hour shifts uh, in watching the luggage. Why only a half hour? Because it is exhausting to stand there and watch. Being watchful is exhausting. Being on high alert is tiring. It only takes one moment of a lost, lost vigilance to get a suitcase swiped from you. You must stay awake and you must be ready. 
And Peter gives a good reason for the believers to stay awake, to be serious, to be ready. Why? Because of Satan's simile, a roaring lion. Peter's final warning is about our adversary, the devil. Peter refers to Satan as a roaring lion. A roaring lion is not afraid. I watch those nature shows. Typically, they hide behind grass and are quiet when they're trying to get the whatever it is that they want to eat. A roaring lion has no fear. And Satan is described as a roaring lion. For a moment, let's look at other places in Scripture that inform us about Satan. We cannot rely on cartoon theology to understand who Satan is and what Satan wants to do. Satan is not Johnny Goodtimes. He isn't the guy who is trying to show you some fun that God just wants to stop you from experiencing because God is a prude. That's cartoon theology. God wants you to have life and to have it in abundance. The devil is not for you. He is not relaxed or chill about you. Satan is actively and continuously hostile towards you. In Revelation 12.10, John wrote, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Satan is the accuser. Satan never stops accusing us before God. Why? He is trying to separate us from God's love, grace, and mercy. Just like when Satan wanted God's hedge of protection removed from Job, Satan wants God to leave us vulnerable to his attacks. In our passage, Peter describes the movement of Satan as prowling. He walks around looking for opportunities to accuse us of wrongdoing before God. Satan knows all about God's holiness, how God hates sin, and how a God that is just must punish sin perfectly. The penalty of our sin is death. Satan actively looks for our unrighteousness, and when we sin, Satan goes before God and says, I thought you were holy and just. Look at Pastor Chris Berg. He is supposed to be a spiritual leader. He teaches the Bible, your, your very breath. But look at him. He's a hypocrite. Here is the list of sins committed today. He doesn't deserve your love. He deserves death, if you're holy, God. Fortunately, my defense attorney is right there. Right? My defense attorney is right there, seated at the right hand of the Father. His name is Jesus. And he has the Father's attention. And he says, after Satan accuses me correctly, he says, all of those sins are paid in full. Your righteous standards have been met, Father, because I paid the debt. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Satan is constantly accusing us to the Father. In John 8, 44, it says, Jesus says to, uh, to the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time, you, of our, you are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan rejoices in murder. He rejoices in it. He must love our local news here in New Orleans. He rejoices in it. Through his cutting lies to Adam and Eve, Satan brought death to all of mankind because the wages of sin is death. When Satan deceived Adam and Eve to disobey God's word, death came into the world and is still wreaking havoc. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, Satan knew at that moment that Jesus defeated him. Now, Satan wants to cause as much pain and destruction he can before his time runs out. Believer, Satan can't take your salvation, but he can take the joy of your salvation. He can make you ineffective in your witness for Christ. He can tempt you with sin that always destroys something, and sin always destroys something, whether it is trust, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your testimony. Satan will take delight in your physical suffering, but we know that our suffering will turn to glory when Jesus is revealed to the whole world. The point of this is to say, Satan is not your friend. What should we do? I know that verse 8 said to be serious, to be alert. What can I do to protect myself from the devil who wants to see me dead or destroyed or ineffective? In verse 9 in 1 Peter it says, resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the, the world. We're told to resist him, actively oppose him. The idea of, of this word is defend, 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 withstand his onslaughts. Don't take a prideful approach. I remember being at a, a youth rally and somebody was, was, uh, was, was speaking and they, they shook their fist and they said, I defy you, Satan. And, and I wanted to take a step back. Like, why, why are you put, picking at the bully? Right? Why are you picking at the bully? And the, and the reason I say that that's a wrong thing to do is let the Lord do it. Because he will win with a word. Don't forget, the devil is a roaring lion looking for a meal. If it is reported to me right now as I stand here that an angry, aggressive lion is walking around the property of Mandeville Bible Church, I am not going to say, don't worry everyone, I got this. <laughs> because I believe that the church grounds are a deacon responsibility. <laughs> I believe so. I could check, but I'm almost certain of that. Jude 9 says this, but when the, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous, a blasphemous judgment, but he said to, to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. If Michael the archangel doesn't take it upon himself to say, I defy you, Satan, but instead says, the Lord rebuke you, then I'm not going to step above Michael and say, nah, but I, I got this. I know Michael can't handle this, but I can't. No. I'm going, to, I'm going to follow his example 
and say, the Lord rebuke you. And the Lord will rebuke him. That, that's a statement that's going to come to fruition. When, you, when, when, when your attitude towards the devil is, the Lord rebuke you, you are saying something that is absolutely going to happen. So how do we resist the devil? <clears throat> Christians may stand firm against Satan only if they depend wholly on Christ, standing firm in the faith. Colossians 2.5 says, For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. Your faith in Christ is strong. So that is what Peter is he says, resist the devil. This is what he's saying, is do it by standing with strength in your faith in Christ. And the other bit of encouragement that Peter gives uh, to the churches, is he says, remember, you are not alone. Others have done it. Others are doing it now. Christ will see you through. Jesus is enough. Jesus secured the victory when he died for our sins and rose from the grave. We are more than conquerors, more than overcomers in this life. We have been made victorious through the blood of Jesus Christ. The beginning of this letter was about knowing your salvation. Know it inside and out. When we do and we keep it in front, in the front of our mind, we can resist the devil and his murderous intentions. That's the final warning. Here we have our final encouragement. Final encouragement. In verse 10 it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you and after suffering a little while compared to eternal glory we think about this all wrong sometimes some of us are guilty of it people tend to think about about life uh, in a timeline in our head where we have our current life stretching out from arm to arm this is our current life right here and then, tacked at the end, we put eternal life. That is an incorrect way to think about it. And I know that sometimes I'm guilty of that as well. What do we need to do <coughs> instead? Well, we need to think about our life being an eighth of an inch. This is our life right now. And eternity just keeps and when we think about it that way, does that change our priorities? Does that change our values? Does that change our perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. So after suffering for only a short, small, insignificant amount of time, the God of all grace, not just some grace or most grace, but the God of all grace will himself bring us to completion. The God of all grace does not hand over this responsibility to another. Right? What does it say in this verse? It says that in Christ will himself, 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. So what will the God of all grace do? The God of all grace will restore, which means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something. Furnish completely. Be completely qualified to pass inspection. I, like everyone else here, am a work in progress. In my previous church, there was a retired gentleman who took up a hobby of restoring clocks. Uh, he was a dentist, and he enjoyed those, those small details. I could never be a dentist. Uh, confidence is lost when a dentist says, ah, that's good enough. You don't want to go to that dentist, right? The God of all grace does a full restoration so that we will be lacking in nothing. God of all grace will also confirm. He will confirm which is to cause someone to become more capable, to make one more able to go ahead and engage, get involved, jump in, be a participant in the Great Commission, build on the foundation laid by Christ. Perhaps you feel like you are not capable for the task. You are a work in progress that Christ will bring to completion, and then you will be perfectly capable. The God of all grace will also strengthen to become more firm, become hardier in attitude or belief, to become more convinced in your faith and greater commitment to follow Christ. Sometimes I feel so weak and tired. And we ask for rest. God, I could use a break. And I think that's valid sometimes. You know it's also valid? God, I could use more grit. I could use more grit for this particular task, for this particular situation. That's valid to pray for as well. And that's the idea of strengthen. In high school, my youth group went to Sedine Bible Camp, which is in the Smoky Mountains north of Chattanooga, uh, to, to work the camp getting it ready for the summer camping season. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, and I don't expect that most people here would be familiar with Sedine Bible Camp, uh, Sedine Bible Camp, um, the camps wouldn't let the, the little black kids from Chattanooga come to, to camp, so Sedine Bible Camp was created uh, to have those, those black children from, from Chattanooga and surrounding areas to be able to come and have a camping experience. Uh, and the reason it's called Sedine is that there are two major trees in the area, cedar and pine, Sedine, right? And, uh, and so the camp still exists today, and, and uh, my youth group went in the spring to, to get it ready for, for the summer camping season. Uh, and so one of the things we did the most of is we raked leaves in the woods. There's a lot of leaves in the woods. I don't know if you, I mean, I kind of knew that, but I had no idea how many leaves were in the woods. And, and so we would do things like that, and other tasks as well. Um, there was, at this Sedine Bible camp, there was a plump, stocky old man who lived on the property and helped with maintaining the grounds. And his name was John Cook, so naturally his nickname was Cookie. You don't even have a choice. Cookie was a mean old mountain man, demanding and tough. He worked us hard and rode us harder. 
When I said that Cookie was stocky, I meant that he appeared stocky. As the sun rose and the temperature increased, Cookie would take off a jacket one by one. By lunchtime, he weighed 78 pounds. <laughs> but he was a tough old man. Cookie wasn't one to throw out a compliment. One of the guys in the group was driving in a wooden post with a large sledgehammer. Cookie walked by and said to him, you strike like lightning. And we were all surprised to hear the compliment come from Cookie's mouth. He finished his thought by saying that the kid struck like lightning because he never hit the same place twice. <laughs> Cookie was a mean old man. I was shoveling stone into a wheelbarrow for hours. I took one moment to stretch my back and to take a breath. And that's when Cookie walked by and said, that shovel looks awfully expensive just to lean on. <laughs> Cookie. That, the main job he had us do was to repair the seawall at, at the camp. In the summer, the Tennessee Authority uh, dammed up the river and turned it into a lake. So the best time to repair the seawall was before the river expanded into a lake. To do this, we lifted large rocks onto a barge that was already sinking before any heavy rock was placed on it. And this wooden barge was as old as Cookie and just as rickety. Once we had piled on way more rock than was advisable, Cookie had us tie two canoes to the barge with the intention of paddling upstream against the wind to the portion of the seawall that needed repair. We were confident that this would never work. And we were right. Cookie had climbed up on the barge and was barking orders at us. By this point, he now weighed 68 pounds because he had taken off two more jackets. He was genuinely surprised when the barge wasn't making it upstream. So he yelled at us louder. Volume doesn't make up for a lousy plan. We, the paddlers, dug in with every ounce of our being we battled tooth and nail, and we were demoralized by our inability to make any progress and by Cookie's constant heckling. That is when Cookie started singing with all his might, row, row, row your boat, <laughs> gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Cookie was a mean old man. Every ounce of strength had been used up, we had nothing left to give, and it was during Cookie's performance of Row, Row, Row Your Boat that we had a quick team meeting. The two canoes came together in the middle of the river, and my friend looked at me and said quietly and calmly, if we untie our ropes, we will never have to see him again. <laughs> we thought about it. The God of all grace will do for us what Cookie could never do. God will make us completely adequate for every task. He will make us capable to serve him perfectly. He will give us the grit to keep going with full commitment. And lastly, he will establish us. Establish is the idea established with a firm foundation, which will cause us to be steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We sure felt like our labor was in vain in the middle of the river trying to paddle a, a barge full of rock upstream against the wind. We have the promise 
that always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The work we do for the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. It accomplishes its task. God is faithful to use it. Why? Because God's word never returns void. So the work we do, the serving that we do, the investment that we make into the kingdom of God and, and, and specifically in the, in the local church here at Mandeville Bible Church, you have the guarantee that your labor is not in vain. We have a lot of people who do things in this church that most of us don't even know about. That most of us don't even know about. The labor is not in vain. It matters. Every little bit matters. I know that uh, here fairly soon the deacons have been planning a, a church work day. That labor is not going to be in vain. It's not going to be in vain. It's going to accomplish something. It's either going to, <clears throat> to make the, the building clean and comfortable so that when we come here, um, imagine if, if this place was a mess every Sunday when we came in here. <clears throat> it would be hard to concentrate. Imagine if, if the bathrooms were so disgusting, you do what you do at gas stations. You walk in and then report back to the family whether you're going to stay or go. Uh, would that affect the ministry of the church if, if things were, were like that? No. Keeping the building in order, that's, that's part of it. Um, working at church meals to, to, to clean up afterwards or to set up. Um, cooking breakfast for the men's breakfast. All the things that we do, we have the promise that none of it's going to be in vain. It would be if, if we weren't faithful as a church and I wasn't faithful as a pastor to teach the word, then it, you might as well just go to a country club. Um, it would be just as valuable. But as long as God's word is being taught and people are coming with the intention of learning, it will not be in vain. You have that guarantee. And then we have verse 11. This is a great reminder. To him, the one who will sustain us, strengthen us, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Dominion meaning the power. Power. I think Peter is comparing Satan with God. And sometimes we put them on equal footing and, and we, should, we should not put them on equal footing. Satan is not the one with dominion. God is the one with the power. And as we said, with one little word, God will defeat him. We need to remember, Christ is the one who has the power. And then we come to a final greeting. A final greeting. There's two things I want to point out in, uh, in this greeting a little more. Others I just want to quickly go through. Um, it says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Silvanus, that's, most think that's Silas, is, is the name that we would know him. Silas if you read in Acts, he, uh, he joined Paul in the missionary journeys along the way. Uh, and, uh, and here, he, he's mentioned <clears throat> probably for two reasons. 
Uh, he was, you ready for a big word? I like big words sometimes. He was Peter's amanuensis. Huh? Impressed? The reason I know that is in college, um, I was taking the class on the book of Romans, and the extra credit question was, who was Paul's amanuensis? I took a guess, and I wrote Paul's friend. I didn't get even half credit. Can you believe that? Uh, that just means a professional writer. Uh, so, so it's very likely that, that Peter spoke and, and, uh, and that Silas was the one who, who wrote it, maybe corrected any, any grammar mistakes, uh, or just you know, was, had better penmanship. They didn't have the uh, computer processing to be able to, to make it a certain way. And it's also likely that Silas is the one who carried this letter and, and went to the five churches uh, each with a letter to, to read it to them or to have them read it. Um, and so that's, that's what that's about. He's described, however, as what? Faithful, as faithful. And then it says, and this is a little odd, she who was at Babylon. There are different ideas as to who this is. Some think it might have been Peter's wife. Um, I think this is referring to the church at Rome. That's what I think this is referring to. Uh, church history suggested that at this time of writing, Peter uh, would have been in Rome. Uh, so why put it this way? I believe Peter uses code because the persecution of Christians in Rome had already started in earnest. Uh, and so to, to put it this way, it just kind of codes it and, and hides it a little bit uh, to, to keep possible per persecution away should this letter um, be, be found uh, and, and traced back. And then also Mark is mentioned giving his greeting as well. And Peter refers to Mark as a son. Mark is not Peter's biological son, but a spiritual son. Mark was mentored by Peter. But there are two concepts that I want to highlight in this final greeting before we close. And the first one is about grace. What is, it says, the true grace of God? What is the true grace of God? The true grace of God is that God has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. We experience his grace today, but we will experience the fullness of his grace when we go from suffering to glory. Our hope is in the future, not for the perfection of this current world or current life. Who would want to live forever in this sinful flesh anyway? Our promise is eternal life, being glorified with Christ. And then peace. Who receives God's peace? The letter ends with Peter's prayer and promise of peace for those who are in Christ. This promise isn't for everybody, only for those who are in Christ. So the question has to be asked, are you in Christ? The opening of this letter tells us how it is we can be in Christ. In verse 2 at the beginning, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. To receive this grace, to receive this peace, is for those who are in Christ. I'll repeat the question because it's so important. Can you say with confidence 
Yes, I know I am in Christ because, and then fill in the blank with the answer that God's word gives. Or is your answer, I hope I'm in Christ. And when we say hope, really what you mean is I wish. I wish I'm in Christ. It would be nice to be in Christ. I think I'm in Christ. Maybe your answer is, I don't think so, because that seems like something you would know if you were in Christ or not. If your answer is anything other than, yes, I know I'm in Christ, why not make today the day where you can find out, am I in Christ? Am I confident that I'm in Christ? Or am I just flapping in the wind? Why not make today the day of salvation? Why not make today the day where we look in God's word and see what the Bible has to say Not what I have to say, but see what the Bible has to say about being in Christ. Please do not think that I am too busy. I am not too busy. I waste so much time throughout the day. You'd be doing me a favor if you gave me something worthwhile to do. And I would love to show you from God's word what God has to say about salvation why not make today that day for those of us that can say with confidence with conviction with the facts concerning salvation why not spend a day recognizing God's peace and living in thankfulness as you consider it Heavenly Father if there are People here this morning and they do not know what it means to be saved. They're not sure how to be saved. Not even sure uh, what, it, uh, what, that all, what it all entails. Father, I ask that you would convict them, that your spirit would convict them and motivate them to find out what your word says so that they can rejoice in the peace that you offer through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have given us this letter because we are in conflict with our culture and, uh, and it, we, need the, we needed the encouragement and the instruction on how to deal with that in a way that glorifies you and honors you. And Father, that's our desire this morning, is to honor you with what we say and what we do and what we think. Uh, we just thank you that you have not left us alone, but your spirit guides us and your word instructs us. In Jesus' name, amen.